Good morning, everyone. My name is Brady Van Bevers, and today is my first official day as youth pastor. Um, yeah. Praise God. Um, thank you for all your prayers out there. And also, um, if y'all could just be praying for our youth department as well. We all know how foundational our teenage years are. So just be praying for um, the recognition of God's word and that we take it as authoritative. With that being said, our scripture this morning is the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Thank you. What version is that? What version is that? NASB. NASB. Well, good morning. I guess you noticed that the words were a little different than those on the screen when he was doing the reading, right? If you didn't notice, you weren't looking, I guess. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's important for us to understand. Different versions of the scriptures give a little bit different uh, insights. And so it's always interesting when you're reading one and then you're listening to another to kind of see the distinction. It raises questions in your minds of, okay, exactly uh, uh, what, why is there a difference in understanding here? And I think that's really important for us when we, when we think about the Word of God, that the interpretation or, or the translation is, is crucial. What we pick, what we choose is a good translation. You always want one that goes back to the original languages and then translates from there. And there will be some places where the wording is a little different, but the meaning is the same. And so uh, don't uh, be confused about that or think that uh, there's a problem there. Uh, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you give us your word. And Father, we rely on the translators to give us a good translation. Thank you that we have those. We have several really, really good translations of your word in English. Lord, I thank you for that. And, and I thank you for the opportunities that we have to actually own a Bible. I've been to parts of the world, Lord, where people don't have a Bible. They don't even have it translated into their languages. And Lord, I thank you that we have your word in our heart language. And Father, I pray that you we would not take that for granted. We've been given a lot, Father. I know a lot is going to be expected of us. But Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we study it together, as we think about it together. Help us to understand your word, but more importantly, help us to understand you. Help us to grow in our relationship with you. 
And I pray this morning would be one of those steps, one of those opportunities to get closer to you as we understand your, the way that you think, the way that you communicate to us, what you want us to believe. Father, I pray that you would guide our thinking this morning and guide our hearts. God, Father, I pray that you would guide our actions as we live it out in our lives. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, uh, if you're not already there because of the reading, into 1 Peter. That's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, last week, we looked at verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This week, we're going to look at 10 to 16. And I want to start with just a thought, because here, here in this passage, in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, concerning the salvation, the, prof the prophets who prophesied about the grace of that was to be yours. And I'm writing, reading from the ESV. The grace, they're prophesied about the grace. They prophesied about the grace. I want us to think about grace this morning. We're gonna think about grace and then how it lives out in holy living. And so you see the title, Living Holy. Last week was Living in Hope a living hope, that we've been given a living hope. You see that phrase used in, in uh, verse uh, around three, this living hope that we've been given because we've been born again into this living hope. This living hope is tied into what the prophets prophesied about grace. And in fact, when you think about what the prophets prophesied about grace, you think, wait a minute, weren't the prophets living in Old Testament times? Yes. Don't you think that they would be prophesying about law because they, they're living under the law. They're living under the time of the law. They'd be focused on the law of Moses. But that's not their focus. They're prophesying grace. Doesn't that stand out to you? I mean, when that jumped off the page to me this week, I was like, oh my, they prophesied about grace. They didn't prophesy about law. And it made me think of the song that we sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. <laughs> right? And, and I know that you, you're thinking, wait a minute, no, it says saved a wretch like me. And I say, yeah, exactly, saved a wretch like you, right? <laughs> we can fill our own name in there. In fact, I used to do that when we'd sing, sing Amazing Grace. I'd be standing next and I'd say this person's name that saved a wretch like Joe or saved a wretch like, you know. <laughs> but the reality is saved a wretch like me, saved a wretch like you, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace is the song. You notice that even unbelievers in our, in our society sing this song, and they love it. They love the sound of the words grace, amazing grace. It has an appeal that appeals deeply into our being, deep into our hearts. If we were to write the song differently and say, amazing law, right? We wouldn't say how sweet the sound. Because law isn't sweet. Law focuses on the external. Grace focuses on the internal. 
Amazing grace is the song, not amazing law. And that's so important. And why is this important? Because it really impacts not only your salvation, because salvation was not by works, it was by grace. It also impacts how we live out our faith. And I guarantee you today, you're either living by law or by grace, even now. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you're living by either law or grace. When I talk about grace, I find that we struggle with it because we don't really know what it means. Yeah, I can tell you that, you know, the little mnemonic, you know, based on G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. An easy way to remember that it's something that God gives us and Jesus paid for it. But we struggle with how does it live out because we, we, want to, we want to live by grace. And in fact, Peter later in the book says to grow in grace. He wants us to grow in grace. So how do we do that? How do we grow in grace, especially when we don't understand it? And especially maybe you don't believe it. Because I've had people tell me after I preach a message on grace, they come up to me and said, why didn't you balance it with law? It's like, you balance it with law, you've destroyed grace. It's not a, a both-and system. We had a law system that's been replaced by a grace system. Listen to the Word of God uh, that speaks about this. I'll, I'll look at four passages, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We'll just kind of go, go through these quickly. What are we saved by? Grace, through faith. Not, we are saved by law. Romans 6, for sin will not have no dominion over you. How is that possible? Since you are not under, I mean, it's very clear. You're not under law. You're under grace. It's a grace system. It's a new system. It's a whole brand new system. And it, I tell you this, law, I mean, grace is deeper than law. Grace is more powerful than law. If we live by law, we're just conforming the external. We can do the right things. Grace changes you internally, and then it comes out. You look at the next two passages. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. Righteousness. How I live my life righteously, if it's through the law, Christ died needlessly because I could have worked on it on my own without Jesus. The reason that I need Jesus is I can't keep the law. And in fact, if you notice that first, we're nullifying the grace of God if we say law is somehow involved. And then 2 Peter 3.18 but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're supposed to grow in that. And what does it do? It glorifies him now and to the day of eternity when we understand that grace. It's amazing grace. Now, there's abuses of grace, right? Just because people abuse grace doesn't mean grace is the, right, is the wrong system. Grace is how Jesus set it up. And the prophets were prophesying about this grace. They prophesied about the grace that was to be yours and they searched carefully and inquired. They wanted to know about this grace. 
So it's tricky. Grace is the higher standard. And yet here's what we find ourselves doing. We live by law. How do I know we do that? You ever beat yourselves up after you've done something, after you've made a mistake? Are you still holding something against yourself that maybe happened sometime earlier in your life? When you've received Jesus Christ, he died for that. Whatever that is that you're holding on to right now, that you haven't forgiven yourself of, he has forgiven you. I mean, think about that. And it makes you realize we're living by a law system rather than a grace system if we have a hard time accepting his grace and his forgiveness. Because if I'm living, in fact, it even gets more seemy uh, or, or uh, unseemingly, uh, I can't think of the word, but it gets worse because when we say, yeah, I know you've forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself, what do you just said? I have a higher standard than God. Oops. Anytime you say that, problem, red flag, should be alarming to you because Jesus died for once for all. All sins for all time. Every sin you ever committed, every sin you will commit, he died for all of those. I mean, think about that. Let that soak in a minute. Christ died for you. He took it. You don't need to hold it over your own head. But we also struggle with forgiving someone else. And Jesus said in this parable that he said, he said, you know, don't be the servant who comes along and, and you're forgiven a lot and then you go and ask your, uh, the fellow servant, say, pay me what you owe when you've been forgiven all of this. Why would you do that? Because we like to receive forgiveness, but we struggle with giving it. And what we say is, well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Well, neither did you, you know? <laughs> I mean, think about it. None of us deserve Christ's forgiveness, and so we should forgive freely. We should exercise grace. Exercising grace toward us, exercising grace toward the next person. But then you think, but if I forgive them, they're going to abuse it. Yeah, yeah, they will. So do you. If I give them a second chance, and then, then I'm going to have to give them a third chance later on. Yeah, you will. And so do you. They're going to take advantage of grace. Yeah, they will. And we should not. We will, but we should not. Why would we want to take advantage of grace? That means that I would sin purposely because I'm going to experience grace. Paul talks about that in Romans 6. He says, why would you, why would you give yourself over to sin when you've been delivered from it? Why would you, uh, you know, give yourself to that? You shouldn't. We shouldn't. It's not the way to go. It's not, it's not going to gain righteousness for us. That righteousness is going to be gained through Christ. So what I found is I found that people pull back on law, on grace, because they, they become disillusioned by it. They, they become disappointed in people that they show grace to. And yet, God 
has never pulled back on grace. Even though it's been abused, even though people take advantage of it, even though people need second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, 70 times seven chances, God has never rescinded grace. And he's the one who could rescind it and he does not. And here's something I think is really important and we see this in 1 Peter 5, 10. It calls, uh, Peter calls God the God of all grace. We are most like God when we exercise grace. We are most like our Father when we show grace toward ourselves and toward other people in this life and when we receive his grace and we know that we don't have to live by our own means, by our own standards, trying to live up to something that, that as, as the apostle said, neither us nor our forebearers could stand. We couldn't, they couldn't do it. Why would we think that we could do that? That doesn't mean that I just live any old way I want to. It doesn't mean that I give up on righteousness. It means I give up on me achieving righteousness on my own. Remember how Peter started this passage? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is designed to sanctify us, to grow us in, sanctify, in sanctification. Sanctification means holiness, which is at the end of our passage here. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And you go, impossible. How could I ever do that? You can't. The Holy Spirit, however, the Holy Spirit is holy. The Holy Spirit is God. He is living in you. When you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, you have the Spirit of God residing in you who sealed your salvation, guaranteeing your inheritance. Wow. And so I can't be holy in my conduct without relying on the Spirit of God. You shall be holy for I am holy. He doesn't rescind that. He doesn't, notice he doesn't say, okay, now as a believer in Christ, you don't have to worry about that anymore. No, and, he, and he's not saying, oh, you got grace, so it's all covered, so just, it's all good, just kind of live however you want to. No, he sets the standard in the bar even higher. Be holy. Be holy. How? We are holy if we understand Grace. That's the only way we can get there, understanding the grace of God, which means we don't pull back, which means we don't get disillusioned about it. And the interesting thing is, is we looked at the gospel last time in verse three, that we're born again to a living hope. How are we born again? He goes on and says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, won't go away, permanent, assurance of your salvation, kept in heaven for you. You have a reserved seat already, not sometime in the future, right now, you have a reserved seat. 
And it's better than having a reserved seat at a Taylor Swift con uh, concert, I'm just saying. <laughs> Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And so it's this idea here that we have this salvation that's incredible because we're born again. And that's not from us. And so we have our faith in this message. But I can tell you what. He goes on in 1 Peter 1 and talks about the person of Jesus. I'm not going to heaven because I have faith in Jesus. I'm going to heaven because I have faith in the one who is God. The unchanging one. Yesterday, today, and forever the same. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is God and will always be God. It's the object of our faith that's important. I can have faith in something that, that has no reason to have faith in. And I could be let down, disappointed, It's the object of our faith that's important, not the faith. And the object of our faith will not disappoint. The object of our faith is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the, the uh, Emmanuel God with us. The object of our faith is Jesus. And that's why I believe that Peter goes on to talk about him. And to focus on him in this next part. Yeah, it's one thing to understand the gospel. And he, I, I can't think of more beautiful words about the gospel than Peter wrote in verses 3 through 8. Incredible to me. Every time I read them, full of theology. Powerful. But it's not just my faith. It's Jesus. He's the one. And so I want us to focus on him today. Because... There are so many places where my faith will be let down. If I have faith in a religious figure, that person's going to let me down. They're human after all. Some not only flawed, but in error. Political leaders can let us down. We're seeing that in the news today, right? All sorts of, no matter where you come out on the deal, you realize, and, and we've known all along, political figures make promises that they don't always keep. Personal relationships. Person breaks their promise to you in marriage, in friendship. They betray you. We've all been there. We've all gone through that in different times, different ways. And so our focus needs to be on Christ. And that's where he goes. That's where Peter goes. Concerning this salvation, he says in verse 10, what salvation? The one he just talked about in verses 3 to 8. Born again to a living hope. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this salvation, this salvation focus on not salvation of just any sort, but of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you, rising from the grave, you believing in Jesus, that you're born again, and that born again is a living hope. That living hope is an inheritance that you have that won't, def won't be defiled. I mean, that's the one that he's talking about. This salvation. He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched 
and inquired carefully. What did they inquire about? What person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories? Wow. So we know what they were looking for. They were like the Bereans in Acts 17, searching the Scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul was preaching were so. We see the, that, that this, this idea here is that they searched and inquired, says it twice. He doesn't just say he searched, doesn't just say inquired. He has two Greek words that are very similar in, in even the way they sound. And in those two words, he did it for emphasis. He said it twice for emphasis. He wanted them to know, oh, they didn't just casually search like, a, you know, you might, you know, Google something that you're kind of half interested in on the internet. I mean, they, they are into this. They're giving it everything. They want to understand this. It's like something that you really, really want to search out or seek out. Uh, recently, my wife and I were able to make a trip to a little town in Kansas, southern Kansas, called Sedan, Sedan, Kansas. My family moved there in 1874, and three generations of, of, of Buckles lived in, in Sedan and then moved away. There's no Buckles left there. We got a chance to go there, and, and all of a sudden it got me interested in, in doing some research. And so for the last three weeks, uh, in, my, in the evenings, I've been, I've been researching stuff about my family and trying to find stuff. I, I, I saw pictures all over in the historical society and other places of, 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 uh, of buckles that were here or there with sheriff, uh, uh, superintendent of schools. I mean, all these different positions that they had in the community. And apparently I made quite a stir because there were you know, only a thousand people in that community, and so everybody knew when, hey, who's this one with Texas license plates showing up, you know, in our city, you know? Coming here to corrupt us or something, you know? And so, uh, and then I, I, I started talking to people, you know me, I, I, you know, I'm so shy and retiring. <laughs> and so I talked to all these different people, and I found out they were all talking to each other after I left, you know, about this, who is this guy? And, uh, but it was, it was so fascinating and I found myself and I ended up uh, finding pictures and I found, uh, and, and I had some stuff that my mom had saved and I began to pull some of that stuff out and I, I just decided to start writing it up, kind of a history of the buckles, kind of, I guess kind of like the Waldens, you know. And, uh, and so for those of you, that's an old show, right? Um, but uh, I, I found myself interested and fascinated and searching on details that nobody else would care about, dates of, of a death or, or, or of a marriage or whatever. And I wrote 55 pages of stuff on my family in Sedan, Kansas. And the pictures kind of filled in some spots as well. And so you, 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 you think this, this was even more important to them than me searching out my history it's searching out the Messiah. It's searching out the one who was to come. They were searching the Christ, the sufferings of Christ. Who is this Messiah and when was he supposed to come? And they knew that it was future to them. He prophesied about the grace that was to be. In other words, coming grace. They saw this time of grace. They saw the time of the church coming. They didn't know what to call it, but they saw this time of grace. They were living in a time of law. They saw this time of grace. We're living in that time of grace. And he says, that was to be yours. 
Peter is very personal in this letter. He, he talks about you and yours all throughout this first chapter. Your faith, you rejoice. And he searched and inquired. He wanted to know what person. And I was thinking, wow, I wish they, I wish they would have kind of left some notes, you know, of what they, what they searched. You know, if we could see their Google history, you know, that would be helpful. Uh, but we don't have that. But, or do we? We have the writings of the prophets, right? We have their own writings, what they, what they found. They, they, and they, they, in those writings, in the prophets, you see some of the things that they searched and what their conclusions were, who the Christ was, when he was supposed to come, the circumstances of his coming, the sufferings and the glories that are supposed to come. And we can do that same search, we have the scriptures. If you wanted to know, you could search it out. Amen. We're going to look at a few of them to kind of give you a little prime, primer, a little prime the pump here time. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the earliest statement about the coming Messiah doesn't use the word Messiah or Christ, but you see what he's saying. He says, I will put enmity. This is the serpent. He's uh, talking to the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, Eve. And between your offspring and hers. Who is her offspring? Jesus. Offspring. We see that uh, uh, in uh, Mark's gospel. He, he goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. He will crush your head. In other words, Satan will be destroyed, killed, put out of commission, and you will strike his heel. So a wound that's not fatal, and then a fatal wound, and Jesus' wound is going to be fatal on the serpent, on Satan himself. Psalm 22, talking about the suffering of the Messiah. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. I mean, you can almost hear, uh, oh, and it says Genesis 3.15. That should say Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 14 to 18. It says, my heart was turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. I mean, you could almost hear those words straight out of Jesus' mouth, and yet they're out of the psalmist's mouth of Psalm 22. Isaiah 53. So here's the prophet speaking of the grace of God and Isaiah was one of the most powerful in Isaiah 53 and he picks up this idea of this piercing that you see in Psalm 22. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The key word there is the, the word for. For our a substitutionary atonement is a theological terminology. He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Wow. He received the punishment, I received the peace. 
And by his wounds we are healed. And then he gets real honest. We all like sheep have gone astray, all of us. Not some of us. Notice it doesn't say some of us like sheep. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and never more than in our society today where we have our, even our own truth. Or we say that we don't really have our own truth. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died for all. He died for us. He died for you. He died for me. So there's the, the suffering of the Christ. There's the focus of it. It makes it pretty obvious who he's talking about. When we look at the New Testament. But then it also says, notice it says, what person or time? And you think, okay, where does it tell the time? Where does it tell me what time that Jesus will die? Or the Messiah will die. How do I know it's Jesus? How do I know he fits within the time frame of the scriptures? This next one will blow your mind. It's in Daniel chapter 9. It says, after the 62 sevens. Now, I've got to give you a little primer here. He talks about 70 sevens. 70 sevens. And we don't know. He doesn't say 70. Uh, in fact, some translations, older translations, King James will say 70 weeks. But all the text, the original text says is 70 units of seven. We don't know if it's weeks, if it's months, if it's years. We don't know at, at first. Until later in Daniel, he talks about a number of days, and you go back and you realize, oh, he's talking about years here. And so there's 62 sevens, and before that he says seven sevens, 62 sevens. So you got, what, 69 at that point, sevens, and then there's a 70th one that's kind of apart from the others. It says, the anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed one will be cut off, killed. So we know Messiah is going to die from Daniel's prophecy and have nothing. And then the people of the ruler will come and will destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's important to understand that when Daniel wrote this, he was in captivity. The city had not been rebuilt yet. The temple had not been rebuilt. He's, he's prophesying not only that they're going to be rebuilt, but they're going to be destroyed again. So there's a whole lot in just that one little statement. But you take those 62 sevens and the seven sevens, 69 of them, and you put them in a chart, you realize this is Daniel's prophecy. 490 years in the past, 490 years in the future. There were 70 times 70, seven year, Sabbath years not kept. And what did they need to have? 70 years of captivity in order to account for that for those 70 Sabbath years not kept. And then he, he goes on, and it's very balanced, 70 times seven calendar years for the Messiah to show up. And actually 69 of those. Uh, and, and you'll have to read the book of Daniel to, to catch the difference, but you'll see that there's a, a week that's, or, or a, 70, a unit of seven that's left off. You'll hear me refer to weeks, and when I say Daniel, 70 weeks, just know I'm talking about units. Of, I'm not talking about weeks. I'm talking about years. Uh, that's just the way it's referred in, in a lot of uh, commentaries and such. So if you take this and you say, okay, 70 times 60, I mean, 69 times 7. 
What's the starting point? What's the ending point? There was a, a, a neat little book that uh, Harold Honer, uh, who was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, wrote. And he tried to independently verify the beginning date and the ending point uh, of, of, of Daniel's 69 weeks. When would that start? Because uh, in, the, in the prophecy, it's from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So we know the beginning point was decree to rebuild Jerusalem. When was that? It was the decree of Artaxerxes, and that was in March 5th, 444 BC. He also independently determined that the way the Jews reckoned time was 360 days in a year. So you take 360 times 69 times 7, and you end up with 173,880 days from that decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem until whatever date that comes out to. And just know there's no zero date, so between 1 BC and 1 AD, there is only one year, not two. He added all those together, and he, and he came up with March 30th, 33 AD. You know what day that was? Palm Sunday. It was this day. It was Palm Sunday. And what was supposed to happen after that 69th, those 62 sevens that we see in, our, in the verse that we looked at? The anointed one will be cut off. Yeah. Wow. The prophets knew the time. And if you were to, to look in Scripture and say, well, how do we know Jesus was the one? He was born in Bethlehem, a little tiny town, kind of like Sedan, Kansas. Small, nothing, nobody knows about that town until I just said it today, right? You probably never had heard the name Sedan. Many people, Bethlehem was a little tiny village, not that large. And if, if you added up everybody that had been born and died there over the, over the years, it probably didn't amount to very many. It wasn't like Jerusalem. It wasn't like some other place where you might have a larger group of people. Jesus came from Bethlehem. He also lived in the time frame and was cut off in the time frame that Daniel said. You know, it doesn't take much information to point to one person in history. If you were going to get a package in the mail delivered to your house, it doesn't take a lot that they have to put on a card. Your name, so they know who in the house it, it goes to, the address of your house, the city and the country, that's really all you need. Well, maybe the state. We put a zip code on there. Four or five pieces of information. And when you think about one person in history, if we were to address an envelope and we wanted to make sure it went to Jesus, that it pointed to Jesus, all you'd have to put is Bethlehem. You'd have to put died after March 30th, 33 AD. And before the city and sanctuary destroyed. When was that? 70 AD by the Romans. So there was a window of time between March 30th, 33 and 70 AD. 
he had to be cut off. He had to die in that time frame. How many people claim to be Messiah that were followed, and even today, by billions of people in the world, born in Bethlehem of Judea, suffered by being pierced, hands and feet, a Roman torture, something that wasn't known, a torture that wasn't known before the time of the Romans. And the Romans took over in Israel in 63 uh, BC. So you know that, that these kind of things, God began to bring them together. We know the time. The, the, the prophets knew the time. They knew the person. They knew that he was going to suffer. And many people, even in that day, when they were thinking of Messiah, weren't thinking of a suffering Messiah, and yet he fits the bill here. He fits Isaiah 53. He fits Psalm 22. We don't have just four or five pieces of information. We have lots of information. His garment's being divided. Casting lots for his garments. It was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were not serving themselves but you and these things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, which he just talked about in 3 to 8, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Angels are sitting on the edge of heaven or wherever they sit and they're watching intently the salvation that's happening and go ongoing in this generation. In the last 2,000 years, they're watching it, which means angels don't know everything because they're limited and finite, which means, sadly, we won't know everything either because we'll never become God. He's unlimited, infinite. It's impossible for the limited, finite to know everything about the unlimited, infinite. So we won't always know, but we can trust him. He says, therefore, therefore, looking back, preparing your minds for action. It means girding up your loins. It means tying up, the, and they would have the long tunic, and they would tie it up in some way. They would either pull it between their legs and tie it, or they would tuck it into their belt, but they would free their legs, prepare your, your mind for actions. How do you do that? How do you prepare your mind? How do you gird up your mind for action? You get ready. You get ready. You want to you wanna know what it is that you're supposed to do. It means that you, you're intentional. It means that you are looking forward to what God is going to do through you. We don't gird our minds for inaction. We, we gird them for action. We get ready. We prepare, Lord, what do you want from me? You died for me. You gave me salvation, this incredible salvation. You gave me a living hope. It's based in an unchanging Savior and a Savior that's clearly Jesus. What do you want from me? We gird our minds. We prepare ourselves to do what it is that God has us to do. And we understand that we're not going to do it on our own. It's going to be done through him. It's going to be done in him. He tells us, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded, which means don't be irrational. Don't let your emotions be your guide. Don't let your feelings be that which you're led by. Don't let them take the, be sober-minded, be in control of those, those emotions. And then he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, all in on grace. All in on grace. Set your hope fully. 
literally, hopefully on grace. Hope completely on grace. Hope perfectly on grace. Those words are words that could be used there in fully. Completely, perfectly, maturely make grace your focus. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all that you do. See, grace leads to holiness. Grace leads to obedience. But when you're in law, law leads to doing what the law says, but it doesn't change the heart. Law only changes my actions. I may grudgingly do what the law says, but when God changes my heart, I don't grudgingly do it anymore. Because of that moment, I'm all in on grace. I want to give you a little insight as we think about this passage. Think about who's speaking these words. It's Peter. Peter, who needed the grace of God. Peter, who needed to understand and didn't understand God's grace initially. There's a, a little video, and I'm going to encourage you to watch the rest of it. I'm just going to show you the end of it. And, the, and, and there's two guys standing on the stage, and, and they're, they're, one is Jesus, and one is Peter. Oh, did you start to show it? One is Peter, and one is Jesus. And I'm sorry, it's not uh, 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 roomy. Uh, you know, it doesn't have a long hair or anything. They're just doing this sketch. And I love these, the, the way that they do these sketches. They're usually funny and yet very powerful. And Peter is, is beginning to dawn on him what grace is. The scene is, is that they're on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has just said three times, feed my sheep. And Peter's still not getting it. And so we pick it up there. Peter, yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty, and she said that the, there was an angel there, and the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay, he is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there and I'm looking in that tomb and it is, it is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do. And you did it and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait. The angel said, what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said, okay. what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? 
Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. Amen. Powerful sketch, isn't it? You are forgiven. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are forgiven completely so that you can experience His grace and then you can begin to live by His grace. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus Christ died on a cross for us. Because like Peter, we have done so many things that we feel like are unforgivable. And you say they are forgivable. Anything that we have in our minds right now that we hold against ourselves or anyone else, you died for. And when we receive you as Savior, your forgiveness, your grace applies to us. Lord, help us to not live in the old system. Help us to live in the grace system. Help us to live by your grace. Help us to grow in grace. We need to. We, we don't completely understand it. Lord, help us to grow in your grace. And I pray that you would be glorified through us as people see the grace of God exhibited through us and because of that they see the gospel being lived out in our lives. The gospel was never intended just to be something that we believed and then we're done with it after we believe. It's to be part of our whole Christian life, the basis for everything that we do and are. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us in such a powerful and demonstrative way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.